welcome to the second of this, uh, of this term's 4040 lectures. I'm Pat Ledden, Provost of Muir College. I want to thank you all for braving uh, what passes for a rigorous winter evening here in La Jolla. But uh, in any event, we appreciate your coming. The weather has been daunting. Uh, this is the second of what we call the 4040 lecture series. If you have not been to one of them so far this year, our idea is to celebrate UCSD's 40th anniversary and to do so by asking our speakers, our distinguished faculty speakers, to look back at their field of research, as if that's appropriate, over the last 40 years, and then perhaps to get out their crystal ball and to look at least, to look into the future, perhaps not as far out as 40 years, but nonetheless to look and see where, where things might be going in the future. Uh, it is a series that we have designed for our friends in the community to show off our faculty. It's, I think I've mentioned other times, this is the only series that we know here at UCSD, which has featured our own faculty as opposed to Regents lecturers and other that we bring in from other parts of the country. In any event, we're delighted that you're here. Our speaker this evening, is, as you know, is Professor Flossie Wong-Stahl. Uh, Professor Wong-Stahl did her undergraduate and graduate work at UCLA, which is a product of the UC system. Before joining our faculty in 1990, she was a senior scientist at the National Cancer Institute. She is currently Florence Reiford Professor of AIDS Research uh, in the Department of Biology and in the School of Medicine, and she is one of UCSD's most distinguished and honored scholars. I very much appreciate her being here this evening. Please join me in welcoming Flossie Wongstall. Flossie? Uh, thank you, Pat, for the uh, very wonderful uh, introduction and also, of course, for the honor of giving this lecture in celebration of the 40th anniversary of UCSD. I was here not 40, but almost 30 years ago as a postdoctoral fellow. And uh, as you said, I came back in 1990 to be uh, on the faculty. Uh, I also want to thank all of you for coming on this nasty evening. Um, but perhaps the, the black clouds and rain are a fitting uh, backdrop to the topic of my seminar, which is AIDS. Uh, AIDS is a, an infectious uh, global epidemic, uh, a pandemic, if you will, that threatens to stretch from the last century well into this century. Now, infectious, infectious diseases are nothing new to us. Uh, they have always been the scourge of mankind, and periodically they, be, they break out into epidemics. The best example, of course, is the bubonic plague, which uh, dis, uh, destroyed almost a quarter of Europe in the 14th century. Also, the image of people stricken with polio, in, including an American president, uh, probably is still very vivid uh, in, uh, uh, in the memory of, of many of us. But man has also been fighting back and uh, has, has made uh, periodic and sometimes dramatic progress in fighting against these uh, microbes. Uh, Edward Jenner, of course, first introduced the, the procedure for vaccination for smallpox. Interestingly, at a time even before they knew what caused smallpox. And this ultimately led to the global eradication of, of the smallpox virus uh, in the 1960s. Louis Pasteur, of course, made many contributions to medicine, but I think the most important being that he proved that microbes, uh, in fact, are the causative agents of many diseases, not lifestyles, not the elements, and not the acts of God. 
Now, I'm not going to go through every one of them, but just to mention uh, the discovery of penicillin uh, by Alexander Fleming. I think that actually changed the face of infectious diseases and ushered in an era of antibiotics. Uh, and finally, uh, our own Jonas Salk here at, UC at San Diego, of course, along with Sabin, developed the polio vaccines. So if we set the clock back about 40 years in the 1960s, uh, medical researchers were actually feeling quite smug about what they've accomplished. Uh, you know, the, with the uh, uh, advent and, and widespread use of antibiotics, diseases like diphtheria, chol cholera, malaria, are sort of things of the past. And of course, the vaccinations for smallpox and polio have completely uh, made those diseases distant uh, memories also. And in fact, uh, Bernie Fields, who's a noted microbiologist uh, who went to medical school in the 1960s, recalled that he was told by his professors not to go into infectious diseases because it's a declining discipline. You know, go into cancer or, or heart disease, you know, instead. And many medical schools actually dismantled their microbiology departments. Uh, however, of course, things changed when AIDS came on the scene uh, at the end of the 1970s and early 1980s. Now, more than 20 years later, uh, AIDS continues to be a major threat to global health. The most recent issue of Time magazine has a series of haunting images of AIDS patients in South Africa. And these are the grim statistics. There are 36.1 million people now living with HIV AIDS, there's 5.3 million new HIV infections just in the year 2000 alone. There's 3 million deaths due to uh, AIDS in, in, also in the year 2000. And cumulatively, since the beginning of the epidemic, there are 21.8 million deaths due to the infection. Now, Africa remains the most devastated continent, but other areas are catching up, so this is truly a pandemic. Uh, with Southeast Asia uh, being uh, fast becoming the new epicenter of the epidemic. So there are many different kinds of responses uh, in, in different societies to uh, this AIDS, AIDS epidemic. There's denial, there's fear, there's shame, there's putting blame on, uh, on, on others. Uh, there's greed, there's anger, there's hatred. But I think there are also good that comes, comes out of it. I think there are many examples of, of human compassion. There's also um, active uh, support at the highest governmental levels, such as in Thailand. But, and in this country, you know, you see all this whole spectrum of different responses. But for me, the most impressive one is the solidarity that's, that, that's positive, is the solidarity and activism of the AIDS patients. The symbol, the red ribbon, has uh, become an inspiration to other minority groups, other patient groups, such as the pink ribbon for the breast cancer patients. Uh, and it's this kind of active activism that uh, el uh, elicits more support for research, that raises public awareness, and, uh, and I think, you know, would facilitate even at the level of drug approval, for example, at the FDA. Now, what is AIDS? AIDS is short for Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. It is an infectious disease transmitted by sex, blood, intravenous drug use, and from mother to infant. 
is essentially a disease of immune dysfunction. But as a result, you have many of you know uh, uh, many different manifestations. Uh, that's that's why it's called a syndrome instead of a disease. Uh, and this can take the form of some you know just enlarged lymph nodes indicating infection, uh, opportunistic infections with a variety of, of agents. Uh, it can lead to the development of cancers as well as neurological disorders. And the cause of AIDS is, the, uh, is a virus called the Human Immunodeficiency Virus, or HIV. Now, where does HIV come from? There are many theories as to where it came from, but the most, I think, reasonable one uh, has been that it, it came from an animal reservoir. It was transmitted from animal to man, a process uh, known as zoonosis. Now, to validate this hypothesis, uh, one has to fulfill at least four criteria. First of all, that the, the, there is a virus in animals that is similar to uh, in genetic makeup to HIV. That this animal virus is uh, is prevalent in its natural host. That this host and the origin of HIV uh, are, have a similar geographical distribution. And then one has to come up with a reasonable explanation as to how the transmission could have taken place. And I think we have fulfilled all four criteria in the case of HIV. Uh, in fact, HIV-1, which is a prototype AIDS virus, is genetically very similar to a virus that's been isolated from several chimpanzees from, uh, in Africa. And similarly, the, uh, HIV-2, which, which is a close cousin of HIV-1, it also causes AIDS, but uh, with a lower penetrance, uh, is related to uh, another uh, primate virus, uh, this one from Suti mangabees, which is, uh, is also an African primate. In terms of co-localization, at first it, it appeared that the distribution of chimpanzees was a little more widespread than the distribution of H uh, than, than the endemic uh, re region of HIV-1, which is centered around here, this, the uh, uh, central part of West Africa. Uh, but then it was discovered, uh, in fact, by a very elegant uh, study reported by Beatrice Hahn, that the uh, endemicity of HIV-1 exactly coincides with the distribution of a particular subspecies of chimpanzee uh, called P. Uh, uh, troglodytes troglodytes. And in fact, it's the virus from this subspecies that's most related to HIV-1, not the virus for for an from another subspecies, for example. So it seems that the origin of HIV-1 is from a subspecies of chimpanzees. Uh, furthermore, there are three major subgroups of HIV-1, all are closely related to this particular uh, primate virus, suggesting there was not one, but three independent entries of, uh, of the virus from chimpanzee to man. Uh, similarly, HIV-2 distribution is very similar to the, uh, where uh, uh, the, uh, the Suti Mangabe monkeys, uh, monkeys uh, are native in, in, in Africa. Now, in terms of a plausible route of transmission, it is known that uh, Africans, uh, people in Africa, uh, keep monkeys and, and apes as pets 
they also hunt them as food. So I think there are many opportunities for transmission through uh, bites and cuts and, and other uh, possible uh, routes of transmission. So as it turns out, not, uh, there are actually five lineages of primate uh, lentiviruses. This is the uh, family of viruses that HIV belongs to. Uh, and they are found in five different uh, uh, genuses of uh, primates. Uh, and uh, all are natively or naturally infected by viruses of this type. Now, interestingly, uh, these monkeys that are na uh, infected naturally in the, in, in the wild do not get AIDS, suggesting that there has been a long co-adaptation of virus and host in these situations. It also turns out that man is not the only new or unnatural host. In the 1970s, there was an outbreak of AIDS-like disease in macaques in two primate centers. And it turns out that the virus obtained from these uh, sick macaques was very much related to HIV-2 and the uh, Suti Mangami virus. And then it was also discovered that these macaques were kept in the same cages as the Suti uh, Mangabees. Now, macaques are from Asia, so they are not naturally exposed to the virus. So this is then an, another example of when a virus jumps species into a new host and is much more virulent in the new host. As a result, however, macaques, uh, it was shown uh, also that macaques can be infected experimentally with SIV or HIV-2, and in fact, they do come, do come down with AIDS-like diseases with the infection. I think this is a very strong argument that HIV and viruses of this type are the causative agent of AIDS. Uh, and furthermore, uh, uh, I think the, the, the macaque model also serves as a very, very good animal model for testing vaccines and drugs for, for, for HIV infection. Now, how is AIDS different from other infectious diseases? That is, why is HIV so difficult to control as, to other, uh, uh, as opposed to other infectious diseases? Usually, when someone is infected with a virus, uh, the virus replicates itself profusely. The host either dies or the immune system uh, takes over and can clear uh, the virus of, uh, of the infection. But the problem with HIV uh, is, I think, several fold. The first is the very nature of the virus. Uh, HIV is, not, is, is, is a particular virus called a retrovirus, which means that when it infects a cell, its genetic information, which is RNA, is first converted to a DNA form. And this DNA, viral DNA then, is integrated into the host genome. And there it becomes permanently uh, uh, it becomes an, a, a permanent endowment uh, of the host genetic information. So therefore, a cell that's infected is infected for its whole you know, lifespan. Now, at this state, the, cell, the infected cell can, can be completely latent in terms of the, of the virus. It doesn't make any viral proteins. So this cell then is completely refractory to the immune surveillance of the host. However, uh, Periodically, it can also be activated to complete the replication cycle of the virus and make new rounds of infectious virus. Now, this late 
potential for latent infection, in fact, raises uh, major problems for, uh, uh, for therapy and, 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 and treatment, as I will indicate uh, later. The second problem with HIV is that it's very heterogeneous. Uh, I mentioned that there are two major, sub, uh, major uh, groups of, of, of uh, HIV, HIV-1 and HIV-2, uh, with HIV-1 being the prototype virus. But even uh, among HIV, there are major subgroups. Uh, the, uh, well, there are three subgroups. The major one being M. Uh, o was discovered and referred to originally as the outliers, so therefore O. And then subsequently, a third subgroup was discovered and referred to as N for non-M, non-O. So now among the major uh, subgroup M, you have different clades which are just subgroups of subgroups, uh, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, for ex uh, et cetera, uh, with clade B being the major uh, clade uh, found in North America and Europe, and the other clades are more prevalent uh, in Africa and uh, Asia. And again, going down the chain, uh, within the, each clade, of course, then you have individual patient isolates. Everyone is different from the other. Now, even from a single patient, you have microvariants uh, in terms of time. You know, if you isolate the virus at different times, they are different. If you isolate the virus at, from different tissues, they're different. And again, you know, I didn't go to another one. Is that even at a single time from a single tissue, you still have not one single genetic entity, but a collection of micro microvariants, uh, you know, so-called quasi-species. But the fact is, even very subtle changes, maybe a single amino acid change uh, in these uh, uh, viruses, uh, in the envelope or in, 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 in the reverse transcriptase, for example, can lead to profound biological differences. Uh, it is also uh, responsible for the problems of drug resistance, of immune escape from a, from a vaccine, and really underlies a lot of the difficulties of controlling uh, this virus uh, infection. The third problem with HIV is that it infects the very cells that are supposed to fight it off, the immune cells. Now, the CD4 T lymphocyte has been referred to as the, ma the, the maestro of the immune system because it's, it's central for the production of antibodies and of, a cell, of cellular immunity. Now, what happens when HIV infects the cell is that it kills the cell. In fact, depletion of the CD4 T cell is the very hallmark of AIDS. In addition, uh, HIV also infects macrophage, another important cell in the immune system. And the infected macrophage actually travels to different sites of the body and is probably responsible uh, for some of the uh, infection in the brain. Now, this is sort of a cartoon of what happens when, uh, uh, in the course of an infection. It's sort of like a tug of war between the virus and the immune system. Early after infection, you have a lot of virus replication, but that is quickly brought down by the immune system. And the initial dip in the uh, uh, number of CD4 cells also recovered. But the recovery and the suppression of virus replication is not complete. So what you have is a low-level viral replication that continues to erode the immune system until finally the immune system collapses 
and then the virus goes out of control, and that's when you have symptomatic uh, manifestation of AIDS. Now, so far, all the drugs against HIV are directed at two steps of the viral replication cycle, at the reverse transcriptase step and at the protease step, the so-called protease inhibitors and the RT inhibitors. And the most effective use of these drugs is using them in combination because that not only increases the potency of the drugs, but also uh, reduces the chance for, for drug resistance. And in fact, the use of such so-called cocktails uh, or, uh, uh, in, in, in uh, HIV therapy uh, clearly made an impact in the epidemic. Uh, these, uh, these regimens were first intru- introduced in the early 1990s, and as you can see, by 1995, uh, there's a, great, a big dip in the mortality rate uh, of the AIDS patients. And this impact is clearly felt, at least in the uh, uh, developed countries. So this created so much uh, optimism and euphoria. Uh, it actually led uh, a leading AIDS researcher to uh, make the bold prediction that we can eradicate HIV infection in a relatively short period of time. And uh, Time magazine, uh, you know, recognized Dr. Ho as uh, a visionary and named him Man of the Year in 1996. However, I think David's hypothesis, I think although reasonable at the time, was based on the assumption that an HIV-infected cell would die in a matter of days. And if one can inhibit the new infections with these powerful drug combinations, then in time, all the infected cells will be depleted and the patient will be cured. But what he didn't realize at the time was that some HIV-infected cells are, in fact, very long-lived. For example, the macrophages do not die as a result of infection, and they last um, a, a bit longer. But more importantly is that there's a recent observation that another class of T-cells called the resting memory uh, T-cell, in fact, are in, uh, can be infected and are latent uh, after the infection, and this, these cells can last uh, for months, if not years. Uh, although if you once uh, withhold the drugs, uh, this, these cells do have the potential of becoming activated, and then you know, the, the infection can become rampant again. So this uh, graph shows the, the predicted time to eradication as a function of different survival times of the virus, infected virus reservoir. Uh, if the half-life is 14 days, one can expect eradication within, uh, in, in less than a year. I mean, one estimates about 20 half-lives for eradication. If the half-life is about six months, it would take five to 10 years to eradicate the virus within that patient. But these are actually data points of you know, plotting from, from actual patients. And what it appears is that the half-life of this latently infected reservoir is actually about 44 months. This is work from uh, Bob uh, Silicano uh, at Johns Hopkins University. And um, so if that is true, then it would take 70, 73 years to eradicate the virus. 
And you know, similar data also have been obtained by Doug Richmond uh, at, uh, at UCSD here. Uh, so I think realistically, one probably should not expect, expect eradication, at least uh, under present uh, circumstances, but rather to uh, control the virus and to live with the uh, inf uh, chronic infection. But the problem, however, is that the drugs do, do come at a price, and I don't just mean literally, but also figuratively. First of all, it's very comp the regimens are very complex, uh, I'm not a clinician, so I don't treat patients, but my colleague, uh, David Looney, gave me the slide to show that the number of pills uh, a pa an ACE patient has to take in one day. I think that's sort of mind-boggling to me. Um, it also has many toxic side effects depending on the patient. And, uh, for example, this is one of the side effects of the protease inhibitors. Uh, it's called lipodystrophy. Uh, leading to de uh, fat deposits in different parts of the body. Uh, these patients are also at higher risk of, uh, for heart disease. Uh, so the current limitations of, uh, for therapy is the toxicity, the complexity, uh, drug resistance, even with combination therapies, one still can get resistant viruses, and of course the, the cost. And which leads to a number of issues. When to start therapy? Because in, in the, uh, at one point, it was very popular to say, hit early, hit hard. You know, try to you know, use uh, drugs as early as possible to suppress uh, virus replication. But now the pendulum sort of swing the other way. Treat late, as late as possible. And that's because of the toxicity and, and, and the resistance issue. Uh, what to use? You know, what drug combinations to use for, for which patient, when to switch once you develop uh, resistance before, after, and, and during, and how to manage and, and, and even prevent uh, toxicity. Now, the cost issue is particularly uh, prohibitive for the developing countries. Uh, and that, I think this uh, issue has been addressed in a number of uh, recent news articles. And there seems to be a movement afoot uh, in some of the uh, uh, developing countries, such as uh, Brazil, Thailand, and uh, trying to, make, uh, to, to manufacture cheaper drugs and to negotiate with uh, some of the uh, big pharmaceutical companies to waive their, their patent privileges uh, so they can you know, uh, make drugs available to, to, to the infected. And I really hope that this movement will gain support, uh, particularly in countries uh, which need this, uh, these drugs most. Now, I think you know, one of the, the, the most beneficial uh, solution for the developing as well as developed countries would be uh, a preventive vaccine. The aim of a vaccine is actually to mimic an infection so you can elicit the right type of immune, immune responses uh, without inducing disease. And this list of different potential vaccines represent a, an increasing distance from the, new, from the real virus. You're starting with attenuated live virus to inactivate a whole virus and as you go down, or more, get more distant and, and get simpler, one often also loses uh, uh, potency. So that's sort of the trade-off. Uh, currently, I think there is uh, you know, really no good effective uh, vaccine that gives long-term protection. So these are some of the issues that face uh, uh, vaccine development. Uh, first of all, we also have to address the problems of heterogeneity and escape. 
that I mentioned earlier. Um, there is really no good animal model for, HIV, for using HIV. So the best substitute is to use the macaques infecting with either SIV uh, or HIV-2, not HIV-1, uh, or a chimeric virus, which is a hybrid between SIV and HIV. And so far, the only long-term protection is seen with the attenuated virus. However, the problem here is that the, ten the same attenuated virus which protects in one monkey can actually cause AIDS in another, perhaps in an immune-compromised host. And so far, the para parameters of protection also are not very clear, although the, um, the current uh, idea is that CTL or cellular immunity may be more important than uh, an antibody response. Now, these are just the scientific issues. There are more, uh, I think, more complicated issues of, uh, uh, that are political, they're economical, they're logistic, they're ethical. And I just won't have time or the ability to go into these in detail, but um, I think uh, 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 John Cohen, uh, who's a science writer uh, who lives in San Diego and with intimate ties to UCSD, have just, has just published a book where he goes into these issues in depth. Uh, so it's a, a, a very interesting book, and I highly recommend it. So what lies ahead? I mean, after all, this is year 2001. Uh, the human genome is an open book, so we're in a post-genomic era. Uh, and I think this is something that even hell could not uh, predict, could, couldn't have predicted at the time. Uh, so what, uh, what do you think would, would, uh, are the directions that we're going in terms of therapy for AIDS? Uh, first of all, I think we're entering an era of pharmacogenomics, uh, which promises that we'll use the right drug at the right dose for the right patient the first time. There's no guesswork, uh, in other words in, the, uh, words, in the process. And as it applied to AIDS, what it means is that we will test the virus in the patient before we treat, so we know what it's resistant to, so we can use the right drugs. Uh, also, uh, the genetic profile of the patients may predict what drugs uh, he or she will be uh, uh, sensitive to, so we won't use those drugs, so you can uh, uh, use the right drugs for the right patient as well. The other um, thing is that I think we can be sure that HIV can be completely controlled if we have a wide choice of potent non-toxic drugs, which we don't have currently. So the idea then is to, to go back to the bench and to discover more drug targets and therefore more drugs. And one way is now to tease, really open the replication cycle of the virus step by step. Uh, and to understand mechanistically how you know, everything fits together so we can rationally design uh, drugs to intervene. For example, uh, there are recent studies that focus on how the virus enters the cell. We now understand that the virus envelope first attaches to the target cell, binds to a molecule, the CD4 molecule, which induces a ch change in the conformation of the envelope that exposes a different part that binds to a second receptor, so the chemokine receptor. And this interaction, the second interaction, uh, induces a further contortion in the envelope so, uh, to form a hairpin structure. And this 
Helping structure is essential for the virus to pierce through the cellular membrane. Now, by understanding this process, uh, there's, there are already new drugs in clinical trial that are aimed directly either at preventing the binding of the envelope to the second receptor or the formation of this uh, hairpin intermediate. And these uh, advances uh, would also help uh, not only in therapy, but also probably in vaccine design. There will, I predict that there will be also in, uh, more uh, attention paid to looking at cellular targets, not just viral targets. And the advantage here would be that uh, cellular genes are less mutable than viral genes, and therefore the resistance issue may not be as uh, significant. Uh, just one example is that uh, my colleagues and I have developed a procedure called inverse genomics, where we first define a function, uh, and then by introducing a combinatorial library of ribozymes to knock out the function, we can then go back and determine which ribozyme is responsible for that effect, and then from the sequence of the ribozyme to identify the target gene involved. And using this uh, uh, approach uh, and defining the function as the ability to support viral replication, uh, we have already identified some novel genes that are involved in HIV replication. And hopefully these would lead to a new class of antiviral drugs. I predict that uh, proteomics would also become very important because by understanding exactly how, for example, a viral protein and a host protein interact with each other, uh, we again would have a more a rational way of designing drugs to interfere with this process. And finally, gene therapy, I think, has had its ups and downs in the, in the past years. Uh, but I believe it uh, remains to be one of the most exciting prospects in modern medicine. It's sure to be a beneficiary of the genomic uh, revolution. And, um, you know, I think it'd be nice to imagine that one can reconstitute the immune system with cells that are completely resistant to HIV infection. So I think on that uh, a very optimistic note, I would end by uh, mentioning that there's actually a very active AIDS research program uh, on campus. We have many outstanding uh, researchers uh, that the work uh, spanning from basic mechanistic studies to clinical research, uh, gene therapy, vaccine development, uh, neurobehavioral studies, etc. cetera. Uh, we are one of a dozen or so federally funded centers uh, called CIFAR, or Centers for AIDS Research, uh, which is part of the AIDS Research Institute, an organized research unit on campus. And uh, Doug Richmond and I uh, co-direct uh, these activities. And finally, I want to acknowledge uh, all my colleagues in AIDS research whose work I uh, freely quoted, uh, but specifically for, for this talk, I want to uh, thank Hanley uh, Tang, David Looney, Carol Sussman and uh, Jeff McKelvey for giving me ideas for some of the slides. Thank you. The question is whether the ability of the AIDS virus to change uh, something new uh, and or is it something to be expected for other viral in, uh, in viruses as well in the future. Um, 
I don't think it's new. Uh, it's the nature of the virus. Uh, because it's an RNA virus that undergoes reverse transcription, and the enzyme uh, reverse transcriptase is more prone to making mistakes than, say, a DNA polymerase. Uh, so every time it copies itself, it can make a mistake. And because of the very high level uh, of viral replication the HIV undergoes, so you go through many cycles of uh, reproduction, and since every time you copy, you can make a mistake, then the percentage of error increases with each replication cycle. Uh, it is not unique to HIV. I think influenza, for example, also can undergo mutations very fast. Uh, it's, and, and it's, you know, I think one can expect that some viruses will have similar properties, but other viruses will not. Okay, the question is, what role does, uh, do the protease inhibitors play in the drug cocktails? Um, the protease inhibitors, as I show, uh, interrupt a late, late stage in the virus replication that's at the level of virus maturation. So together with the uh, reverse transcriptase inhibitors, they're actually hitting at both ends of the replication cycle. So they are somewhat synergistic. Uh, so the major uh, effect is that you suppress the production of new infectious virus from an infected cell, as well as new infections together. Yeah, okay, the question is whether some people are immune to HIV infection, uh, and if so, can they be subjects of, of you know, study that would teach us something? Is that a question? Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, I don't know if immune is the word, because there are patients, uh, there are people who are resistant to virus infection uh, on a relative basis. And in fact, uh, what we uh, now understand is that uh, I mentioned about uh, one of the molecules, a co-receptor, which is a uh, CCR5, uh, uh, or I didn't say CCR5, but a chemokine uh, receptor. And one of the chemokine receptors is called CCR5. It turns out that a significant proportion of Caucasians have a uh, mutation in the CCR5 gene. I think about 10% uh, are heterozygous and 1% are homozygous. And people with a homozygous deletion in CCR5 do not make that uh, co-receptor. And as a result, they are highly resistant to HIV infection. Uh, and uh, but, but that, that's not absolute, because the virus can use a different co-receptor, although maybe less efficiently. Uh, so so uh, I think, you know, from there, I mean, we, we actually understand the mechanism. Now, in terms of immune resistance, I think there are people who seem to, you know, have been multiply exposed and, and they don't, you know, uh, get either infected or even if they get infected, they don't get sick as fast. Uh, what are the correlates? I think they're, you know, they are of interest, but I don't, don't think the picture is as clear in those, in those cases.